This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer yourself, please visit LibriVox.org. Today's reading by alexfoster.me.uk Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne Chapter 10 In which Passepartout is only too glad to get off with the loss of his shoes. Everybody knows that the great reverse triangle of land, with its base in the north and its apex in the south, which is called India, embraces 1,400,000 square miles, upon which is spread unequally a population of 180 millions of souls. The British crown exercises a real and despotic dominion over the larger portion of this vast country, and has a governor-general stationed at Calcutta, governors at Madras, Bombay, and Bengal, and a lieutenant-governor at Agra but British India, properly so called, only embraces 700,000 square miles, and a population of from 100 to 110 millions of inhabitants. A considerable portion of India is still free from British authority, and there are certain ferocious rajahs in the interior who are absolutely independent. The celebrated East India Company was all-powerful from 1756, when the English first gained a foothold on the spot where now stands the city of Madras, down to the time of the great Sepoy insurrection. It gradually annexed province after province, purchasing them off the native chiefs, whom it seldom paid, and appointed the Governor-General and his subordinates, civil and military. But the East India Company has now passed away, leaving the British possessions in India directly under the control of the Crown. The aspect of the country, as well as the manners and distinctions of race, is daily changing. Formerly one was obliged to travel in India by the old cumbrous methods of going on foot or on horseback, in palanquins or unwieldy coaches. Now fast steamboats ply on the Indus and the Ganges, and a great railway with branch lines joining from the main line at many points on its route, traverses the peninsula from Bombay to Calcutta in three days. This railway does not run in a direct line across India. The distance between Bombay and Calcutta as the bird flies is only from 1,000 to 1,100 miles but the deflections of the road increase this way by more than a third. The general route of the Great Indian Peninsula Railway is as follows. Leaving Bombay, it passes through Salset, crossing to the continent opposite Tanna, goes over the chain of the Western Ghouts, runs thence northeast as far as Burampur, skirts to the nearly independent territory of Bundelkund, ascends to Allahabad, turns thence eastwardly meeting the Ganges at Benares, then departs from the river a little, and, descending southeastward by Burdivan and the French town of Chandanagor, has its terminus at Calcutta. The passengers of the Mongolia went ashore at half-past four p.m. At exactly eight the train would start for Calcutta. Mr. Fogg, after bidding good-bye to his whist partners, left the steamer, gave his servant several errands to do, urged it upon him to be back at the station promptly at eight, and, with his regular step, which beat to the second like an astronomical clock, directed his steps to the passport office. As for the wonders of Bombay, its famous city hall, its splendid library, its forts and docks, its bazaars, mosques, synagogues, its Armenian churches and the noble pagoda on Malabar Hill, with its two polygonal towers, he cared not a straw to see them. He would not deign to examine even the masterpieces of Elephanta, or the mysterious hypogea concealed southeast from the docks, or those fine remains of Buddhist architecture, the Canarian grottoes of the island of Salset. Having transacted his businesses at the passport office, Phileas Fogg repaired quietly to the railway station where he ordered dinner. Among the dishes served up to him the landlord especially recommended a certain gibbet of native rabbit on which he prided himself. Mr. Fogg accordingly tasted the dish, 
but despite its spiced sauce, found it far from palatable. He rang for the landlord, and on his appearance said, fixing his clear eyes upon him, "'Is this rabbit, sir?' "'Yes, my lord,' the rogue boldly replied. "'Rabbit from the jungles.' "'And did this rabbit not mew when he was killed?' "'Mew, my lord? What, a rabbit mew? I swear to you.' "'Be so good, landlord, as not to swear, but remember this. Cats were formerly considered, in India, as sacred animals. That was a good time.' "'For the cats, my lord?' "'Perhaps for the travellers as well.' After which Mr. Fogg quietly continued his dinner. Fix had gone on shore shortly after Mr. Fogg, and his first destination was the headquarters of the Bombay police. He made himself known as a London detective, told his business at Bombay, and the position of affairs relative to the supposed robber, and nervously asked if a warrant had arrived from London. It had not reached the office. Indeed, there had not yet been time for it to arrive. Fix was sorely disappointed, and tried to obtain an order of arrest from the director of the Bombay police. This the director refused as the matter concerned the London office, which alone could legally deliver the warrant. Fix did not insist, and was fain to resign himself to wait the arrival of the important document, but he was determined not to lose sight of the mysterious rogue as long as he stayed in Bombay. He did not doubt for a moment, any more than Passepartout, that Phileas Fogg would remain there, at least until it was time for the warrant to arrive. Passepartout, however, had no sooner heard his master's orders on leaving the Mongolia than he saw at once that they were to leave Bombay as they had done Suez and Paris, and that the journey would be extended at least as far as Calcutta, and perhaps beyond that place. He began to ask himself if this bet that Mr. Fogg talked about was not really in good earnest, and whether his fate was not, in truth, forcing him, despite his love of repose, around the world in eighty days. Having purchased the usual quota of shirts and shoes, he took a leisurely promenade about the streets, where crowds of people of many nationalities—Europeans, Persians with pointed caps, Banyas with round turbans, Sins with square bonnets, Parsis with black mitres, and long-robed Armenians—were collected. It happened to be the day of a Parsi festival. These descendants of the sect of Zoroaster, the most thrifty, civilized, intelligent, and austere of the East Indians, among whom are counted the money of the richest native merchants of Bombay, were celebrating a sort of religious carnival, with processions and shows, in the midst of which Indian dancing-girls, clothed in rose-coloured gauze, looped up with gold and silver, danced airily, but with perfect modesty, to the sound of viols and the clanging of tambourines. It is needless to say that Passepartout watched these curious ceremonies with staring eyes and gaping mouth, and that his countenance was that of the greenest booby imaginable. Unhappily for his master, as well as himself, his curiosity drew him unconsciously farther off than he intended to go. At last, having seen the Parsi carnival wind away in the distance, he was turning his steps towards the station, when he happened to espy the splendid pagoda on Malabar Hill, and was seized with an irresistible desire to see its interior. He was quite ignorant that it is forbidden to Christians to enter certain Indian temples, and that even the faithful must not go in without first leaving their shoes outside the door. It may be said here that the wise policy of the British government severely punishes a disregard of the practices of the native religions. Passepartout, however, thinking no harm, went in like a simple tourist, and was soon lost in admiration of the splendid Brahmin ornamentation which everywhere met his eyes, when of a sudden he found himself sprawling on the sacred flagging. He looked up to behold three enraged priests who forthwith fell upon him, tore off his shoes, and began to beat him with loud savage exclamations. 
The agile Frenchman was soon upon his feet again, and lost no time in knocking down two of his long-gowned adversaries with his fists, and a vigorous application of his toes. Then, rushing out of the pagoda as fast as his legs could carry him, he soon escaped the third priest by mingling with the crowd in the streets. At five minutes before eight, Passepartout, hatless, shoeless, and having in the squabble lost his package of shirts and shoes, rushed breathlessly into the station. Fix, who had followed Mr. Fogg to the station, and saw that he was really going to leave Bombay, was there upon the platform. He had resolved to follow the supposed robber to Calcutta, and farther if necessary. Passepartout did not observe the detective, who stood in an obscure corner, but Fix heard him relate his adventures in a few words to Mr. Fogg. "'I hope that will not happen again,' said Phileas Fogg coldly, as he got into the train. Poor Passepartout, quite crestfallen, followed his master without a word. Fix was on the point of entering another carriage when an idea struck him which induced him to alter his plan. "'No, I'll stay,' muttered he. "'An offence has been committed on Indian soil. I've got my man.' Just then the locomotive gave a sharp screech, and the train passed out into the darkness of the night. CHAPTER Eleven, IN WHICH Phileas Fogg SECURES A CURIOUS MEANS OF CONVEYANCE AT A FABULOUS PRICE The train had started punctually. Among the passengers were a number of officers, government officials and opium and indigo merchants, whose business called them to the eastern coast. Passepartout rode in the same carriage with his master, and a third passenger occupied a seat opposite to them. This was Sir Francis Cromarty, one of Mr. Fogg's whist partners on the Mongolia, now on his way to join his corps at Benares. Sir Francis was a tall, fair man of fifty, who had greatly distinguished himself in the last Sepoy revolt. He made India his home, only paying brief visits to England at rare intervals, and was almost as familiar as a native with the customs, history, and character of India and its people. But Phileas Fogg, who was not travelling, but only describing a circumference, took no pains to inquire into these subjects. He was a solid body, traversing an orbit around the terrestrial globe according to the laws of rational mechanics. He was at this moment calculating in his mind the number of hours spent since his departure from London, and had it been in his nature to make a useless demonstration, would have rubbed his hands for satisfaction. Sir Francis Cromarty had observed the oddity of his travelling companion, although the only opportunity he had for studying him had been while he was dealing the cards, and between two rubbers, and questioned himself whether a human heart really beat beneath this cold exterior, and whether Phileas Fogg had any sense of the beauties of nature. The brigadier-general was free to mentally confess that, of all the eccentric persons he had ever met, none was comparable to this product of the exact sciences. Phileas Fogg had not concealed from Sir Francis his design of going around the world, nor the circumstances under which he set out, and the general only saw in the wager a useless eccentricity and a lack of sound common sense. In the way this strange gentleman was going on, he would leave the world without having done any good to himself or anybody else. An hour after leaving Bombay, the train had passed the viaducts at the island of Salsette, and had got into the open country. At Kalyan they reached the junction of the branch line which descends towards southeastern India by Kandala and Puna, and, passing Powell, they entered the defiles of the mountains with their basalt bases and their summits crowned with thick and verdant forests. Phileas Fogg and Sir Francis Cromarty exchanged a few words from time to time, and now Sir Francis, reviving the conversation, observed, "'Some years ago, Mr. Fogg, you would have met with a delay at this point, which would probably have lost you your wager.' "'How so, Sir Francis?' 
because the railway stopped at the base of these mountains, which the passengers were obliged to cross in palanquins, or on ponies to Candelar on the other side. "'Such a delay would not have deranged my plans in the least,' said Mr. Fogg. "'I have constantly foreseen the likelihood of certain obstacles.' "'But, Mr. Fogg,' pursued Sir Francis, "'you run the risk of having some difficulty about this worthy fellow's adventure in the Pakoda. Passepartout, his feet comfortably wrapped in his travelling blanket, was sound asleep, and did not dream that anybody was talking about him. The government is very severe about that kind of offence. It takes particular care that the religious customs of the Indians should be respected, and if your servant were caught—' "'Very well, Sir Francis,' replied Mr. Fogg. "'If he had been caught, he would have been condemned and punished, and then would have quietly returned to Europe. I don't see how this affair could have delayed his master.' The conversation fell again. During the night the train left the mountains behind and passed Nasik, and the next day proceeded over the flat, well-cultivated country of the Kandesh, with its straggling villages, above which rose the minarets of the pagodas. This fertile territory is watered by numerous small rivers and limpid streams, mostly tributaries of the Godavari. Passepartout, on waking and looking out, could not realise that he was actually crossing India in a railway train. The locomotive, guided by an English engineer and fed with English coal, threw out its smoke upon cotton, coffee, nutmeg, clove and pepper plantations, while the steam curled in spirals around groups of palm-trees, in the midst of which were seen picturesque bungalows, viharis, sort of abandoned monasteries, and marvellous temples enriched by the exhaustless ornamentation of Indian architecture. Then they came upon vast tracts extending into the horizon, with jungles inhabited by snakes and tigers, which fled at the noise of the train, succeeded by forests penetrated by the railway, and still haunted by elephants, which, with pensive eyes, gazed at the train as it passed. The travellers crossed, beyond Milligam, the fatal country so often stained with blood by the sectaries of the goddess Kali. Not far off rose Ellora, with its graceful pagodas, and the famous Aurangabad, capital of the ferocious Aurangzeb, now the chief town of one of the detached provinces of the kingdom of the Nizam. It was thereabouts that Feringay, the thuggy chief, king of the stranglers, held his sway. These ruffians, united by a secret bond, strangled victims of every age in honour of the goddess Death, without ever shedding blood. There was a period when this part of the country could scarcely be travelled over without corpses being found in every direction. The English government had succeeded in greatly diminishing these murders, though the thuggies still exist, and pursue the exercise of their horrible rites. At half-past twelve the train stopped at Burampur, where Passepartout was able to purchase some Indian slippers, ornamented with false pearls, in which, with evident vanity, he proceeded to encase his feet. The travellers made a hearty breakfast and started off for Asagur, after skirting for a little the banks of the small river Tapti, which empties into the Gulf of Gambray near Surat. Passepartout was now plunged into an absorbing reverie. Up to his arrival at Bombay he had entertained hopes that their journey would end there, but now that they were plainly whirling across India at full speed, a sudden change had come over the spirit of his dreams. His old vagabond nature returned to him. The fantastic ideas of his youth once more took possession of him. He came to regard his master's project as intended in good earnest believed in the reality of the bet, and therefore in the tour of the world and the necessity of making it without fail within the designated period. Already he began to worry about possible delays and accidents which might happen on the way. 
He recognized himself as being personally interested in the wager, and trembled at the thought that he might have been the means of losing it by his unpardonable folly of the night before. Being much less cool-headed than Mr. Fogg, he was much more restless, counting and recounting the days passed over, uttering maledictions when the train stopped and accusing it of sluggishness, and mentally blaming Mr. Fogg for not having bribed the engineer. The worthy fellow was ignorant that, while it was possible by such means to hasten the rate of a steamer, it could not be done on the railway. The train entered the defiles of the Sotpur Mountains, which separate the Kandayish from the Bundelkund, towards evening. The next day Sir Francis Cromarty asked Passepartout what time it was, to which, on consulting his watch, he replied that it was three in the morning. This famous timepiece, always regulated on the Greenwich Meridian, which was now some seventy-seven degrees westward, was at least four hours slow. Sir Francis corrected Passepartout's time, whereupon the latter made the same remark that he had done to fix, and upon the general insisting that the watch should be regulated in each new meridian, since he was constantly going eastward, that is, in the face of the sun, and therefore the days were shorter by four minutes for each degree gone over, Passepartout obstinately refused to alter his watch, which he kept at London time. It was an innocent delusion which could harm no one. The train stopped, at eight o'clock, in the midst of a glade some fifteen miles beyond Rotal, where there were several bungalows and workmen's cabins. The conductor, passing along the carriages, shouted, "'Passengers will get out here!' Phileas Fogg looked at Sir Francis Cromarty for an explanation, but the general could not tell what meant a halt in the midst of these forest of dates and acacias. Passepartout, not less surprised, rushed out, and speedily returned, crying, "'Monsieur, no more railway!' "'What do you mean?' asked Sir Francis. "'I mean to say that the train isn't going on.' The general at once stepped out, while Phileas Fogg calmly followed him, and they proceeded together to the conductor. "'Where are we?' asked Sir Francis. "'At the hamlet of Colby.' "'Do we stop here?' "'Certainly. The railway is not finished.' "'What? Not finished?' "'No.' There's still a matter of fifty miles to be laid from here to Allahabad, where the line begins again. But the papers announced the opening of the railway throughout. What would you have, officer? The papers were mistaken. Yet you sell tickets from Bombay to Calcutta, retorted Sir Francis, who was growing warm. No doubt, replied the conductor. But the passengers know that they must provide means of transportation for themselves from Colby to Allahabad. Sir Francis was furious. Passepartout would willingly have knocked the conductor down, and did not dare look at his master. "'Sir Francis,' said Mr. Fogg quietly, "'we will, if you please, look about for some means of conveyance to Allahabad. "'Mr. Fogg, this is a delay greatly to your disadvantage.' "'No, Sir Francis, it was foreseen.' "'What? You knew that the way—' "'Not at all. But I knew that some obstacle or other would sooner or later arise in my route.' Nothing, therefore, is lost. I have two days which I have already gained to sacrifice. A steamer leaves Calcutta for Hong Kong at noon on the 25th. This is the 22nd. We shall reach Calcutta in time. There was nothing to say to so confident a response. It was but true that the railway came to a termination at this point. The papers were like some watches which have a way of getting too fast, and had been premature in their announcement of the completion of the line. The greater part of the travellers were aware of this interruption, and leaving the train they began to engage such vehicles as the village could provide—four-wheeled palkigaris, wagons drawn by zebus, 
carriages that looked like perambulating pagodas, palanquins, ponies, and what not. Mr. Fogg and Sir Francis Cromarty, after searching the village from end to end, came back without having found anything. "'I shall go afoot,' said Phileas Fogg. Passepartout, who had now rejoined his master, made a wry grimace as he thought of his magnificent but too frail Indian shoes. Happily he too had been looking about him, and after a moment's hesitation said, "'Monsieur, I think I have found a means of conveyance.' "'What?' "'An elephant! An elephant that belongs to an Indian who lives but a hundred steps from here.' "'Let's go see the elephant,' replied Mr. Fogg. They soon reached a small hut, near which, enclosed within some high palings, was the animal in question. An Indian came out of the hut, and, at their request, conducted them within the enclosure. The elephant, which its owner had reared, not for a beast of burden, but for warlike purposes, was half domesticated. The Indian had begun already by often irritating him, and feeding him every three months on sugar and butter, to impart to him a ferocity not in his nature, this method being often employed by those who train the Indian elephants for battle. Happily, however, for Mr. Fogg, the animal's instruction in this direction had not gone far, and the elephant still preserved his natural gentleness. Keone, this was the name of the beast, could doubtless travel rapidly for a long time, and in default of any other means of conveyance, Mr. Fogg resolved to hire him. But elephants are far from cheap in India, where they are becoming scarce. The males, which alone are suitable for circus shows, are much sought, especially as but few of them are domesticated. When, therefore, Mr. Fogg proposed to the Indian to hire Keone, he refused point-blank. Mr. Fogg persisted, offering the excessive sum of ten pounds an hour for the loan of the beast to Allahabad. Refused. Twenty pounds? Refused also. Forty pounds? Still refused. Passepartout jumped at each advance, but the Indian declined to be tempted. Yet the offer was an alluring one, for, supposing it took the elephant fifteen hours to reach Allahabad, his owner would receive no less than six hundred pounds sterling. Phileas Fogg, without getting in the least flurried, then proposed to purchase the animal outright, and at first offered a thousand pounds for him. The Indian, perhaps thinking he was going to make a great bargain, still refused. Sir Francis Cromarty took Mr. Fogg aside, and begged him to reflect before he went any further, to which that gentleman replied that he was not in the habit of acting rashly, that a bet of twenty thousand pounds was at stake, and that the elephant was absolutely necessary to him that he would secure him if he had to pay twenty times his value. Returning to the Indian, whose small sharp eyes, glistening with avarice, betrayed that with him it was only a question of how great the price he could obtain, Mr. Fogg offered him first twelve hundred, then fifteen hundred, eighteen hundred, two thousand pounds. Passepartout, usually so rubicund, was fairly white with surprise. At two thousand pounds the Indian yielded. "'What a price, good heavens!' cried Passepartout, "'for an elephant!' It only remained now to find a guide, which was comparatively easy. A young Parsi with an intelligent face offered his services, which Mr. Fogg accepted, promising so generous a reward as to materially stimulate his zeal. The elephant was led out and equipped. The Parsi, who was an accomplished elephant-driver, covered his back with a sort of saddle-cloth, and attached to each of his flanks some curiously uncomfortable howders. Phileas Fogg paid the Indian with some banknotes which he extracted from the famous carpet-bag, a proceeding that seemed to deprive poor Passepartout of his vitals. Then he offered to carry Sir Francis to Allahabad, which the brigadier gratefully accepted, as one traveller the more would not be likely to fatigue the gigantic beast. 
Provisions were purchased at Colby, and while Sir Francis and Mr. Fogg took the howdahs on either side, Passepartout got astride the saddle-cloth between them. The Parsi perched himself on the elephant's neck, and at nine o'clock they set out from the village, the animal marching off through the dense forest of palms by the shortest cut. End of chapter 11 Recorded in Nottingham, England, on the 27th of August, 2006, by Alex Foster, www.alexfoster.me.uk.